All right, again, this is Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my sight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence, through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. All right, we'll see if all that is working. You may be seated. This morning we are going to be continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians. So if you want to find your way to the book of Ephesians in this letter, obviously we are in chapter 3. In this letter Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus about God's plan for all time, which is to unite all things in Him, in Jesus. In chapter 1, Paul shares this plan of how he, uh, how Jesus, who is the, is the key to all of this, is worthy of of this plan. He is the one who is worthy. So we got the plan. We've gotten uh, Jesus's credentials to, to fulfill this plan all in chapter one. In chapter two, Paul elegantly lays out the amazing power of the gospel. God is saving his people. God has changed us through the power, his power on our behalf, only through God's grace given to us. He has done all of this and gives us, gifts us his grace. Salvation. We can do nothing. God has done everything. And then last week, we looked at how that change in us as a group has joined us, begun to join all of us together as one new people. We are being built together into a spiritual temple, to a holy temple, a holy house for God. This week, we're going to begin chapter 3. Paul is going to talk of himself as one of those building blocks of the temple. He's one like us. He's an example for us, both of God's faithfulness 
and God's purpose in our individual lives. So think, notice what we're doing. We've got the big picture. Jesus is worthy. Here's the plan. It's being enacted. Uh, chapter 2, it's being enacted in God's people. He is beginning to join them together to become something great. And one of those building blocks, Paul, as our example, represents kind of what all of us uh, can can be or are intended to be. So we're kind of narrowing down or zeroing in on all of this. To get us started today, though, I have a question, and I want to ask the kids this question. What's the difference between building something and growing something? Is building and growing the same thing? Why not? What's the difference? Okay, so there are things we need, but we need the parts to do it, maybe for building, and, and we're helping. Like we have to give stuff like food and water or whatever to help something to grow. So those, those are a little bit different, right? Can you, can you build a tomato plant? No. 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 Can you grow a house? No. Unless you live in a tree. You, you, you can't really grow a house in um, you, you build that. A building is something that we control. Like we control the piece. The expansion of whatever that is we're building comes from outside of the thing itself. So if we're going to build a car, we take those parts and we who are outside of the car begin to build the car. There's a designer and a builder who does the work. We build houses and buildings and cars and other things like that. But growth is organic, we say. We can help, help things to grow, but we don't really get the ability to do it. The expansion comes from within the thing itself. It begins to grow itself. We help, we nurture it, but we don't grow it. Plants grow, such as cucumbers and trees and avocados. We, are, uh, we can help those things to happen, but we don't do the work of putting them together. It's kind of funny to think about the church in some ways, because the church is really both of these things we didn't we'll talk about it uh, but even from last week we're gonna we're gonna talk about how the church is is both growing itself and being built by God um, make sure to pay attention maybe we're gonna talk over lunch get together with your family and talk about ways in which God is growing the church and how God is building the church um, and and you might want to think about maybe what your role is. How, do you, how does your family contribute to those things? How, do you, uh, how are you working for the church? Our passage begins uh, with a very interesting phrase. It says, for this reason. This is at the beginning, verse 1, if you want to look there in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, and we must ask, what, what's the reason he's referring to? And it could include this whole letter so far. It could be. I mean, in a way it is, but it at least refers to those verses just before in verse 19 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. It at least refers to that section. Because of this, we need to look at a detail from those verses that kind of sets our thoughts in the right direction for the passage this morning. Last week we saw that these verses talked about how God is building a holy temple or house to dwell in. That was last week. So turn with me back to chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, to chapter 2, verse 
um, really 20 through 22. Kind of in finishing up chapter nine, or verse 19, verse 19, he says, we are the parts of the house. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice that there are two verbs here, two action words in verse 21. This is what I was talking with the kids about. The whole structure is being joined together. It says being built into a holy temple in verse 22. And we see that makes perfect sense. We've been talking about construction and God, the master builder, is building and we are being built. That's great. Then we look at the other verb. This whole structure grows into a holy temple. First verb talks about God building and us sort of passively being built by his work, which is awesome. But the second verb is active, actively growing itself. There's an interesting mix or, or kind of a compound metaphor here for the church and what it, uh, but, but what does it mean? It means that the church of God is being built by God's direction, true, and is building or more clearly is growing itself into the temple of God through its own efforts too. It's God and his people working together. These thoughts are going to guide us as we walk through our passage today. I think of a seminary professor who was really, he just thought of this as one of the most amazing truths. I think it is uh, one of those. But he, he drew a picture. He was no artist. He's probably as good as I am. Maybe a little better than me. I don't know. But he drew a picture of the temple or this house and it had arms on it. And they were building itself. And, and he just was, he would talk about that one often. How is amazing. God is working. It's amazing. God has work for us to do as we seek to grow his church, the temple for him. All right. Let's get to our passage in chapter three. I'm going to skip actually verse one. We're going to get to that at the end. But turn to chapter, or chapter three, verse two, and we're going to read verse two through six. And there are a couple truths um, that we that we see throughout this passage. Um, God Paul God is involved in Paul's life. He remember he's our example of one of the bricks that God is using in his temple. Um, God is involved in, in Paul's life in two very significant ways. These are sort of big category things. God saved Paul and God sent Paul. Seems very simplistic, uh, but, but they're significant. They're important. They're very, um, really amazing truths for us. Verse 2. Assuming, Paul says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, that you can perceive my, um, when you read this, you can perceive my insight in the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that uh, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Um, Sorry, just a minute. What just happened? 
<laughs> went somewhere else. Found. All right, yes. Glad I finished that passage before I did that. I touched it wrong. It's my fault. I'll take the blame. All right, we're all straightened out. My notes are good. All right, in these words, Paul explains who he is. He explains who sent him and what his assignment and message is. Paul wants the Ephesians to know who he is. Paul begins with an assumption that the Ephesians actually know of him. And it's actually possible that the Ephesians, um, there are some Ephesians or some other believers there who don't know Paul. It's been some years since he's been there. There's also a high likelihood that this letter was called to circulate to other different places. And you would think they would have heard of Paul. He references uh, and wants them to know who he is. Uh, But it's possible that some of them are new to this whole guy named Paul. It's possible. Next, Paul assumes they've heard of his responsibility. He wants them to know not just who he is, but of his responsibility, which he calls the stewardship of God's grace. He uses the word stewardship, suggesting that he's responsible for something that's somebody else's, namely God's. According to the commentator Peter O'Brien, he said, We find in Ephesians 3, verse 2 through 7, the reoccurring emphasis that everything Paul has become and achieved in his apostolic mission is not his own doing. It's a result of God's grace. God's choice of him, God's call to him, and God's enabling power in him to go and do what? To go into, this is my words, I just stopped the quote there, to go and share God's grace with other people. God's grace is all over this for Paul and for those he's talking to. Paul is charged, as we are, with a challenge to follow Jesus' command to us in Matthew 28. To go and make disciples. It's not an individualized call uh, in that some people are called and some people are not. No, we're all called to do that. Make disciples. In Acts 1.8, we are told to be Jesus' witnesses. Again, this is given for everyone. We are all given a stewardship of God's salvation with a role to share it with others. That's true. Just like Paul. But secondly, Paul, the ministry of Paul, is a blessing to Paul. God saved him. God has a plan for him, and God is with him. And he wants them to realize this. This is true for us too. God has a plan for you, which we will talk about a little bit more in a moment. It's a a blessing to be a part of what God is doing and to see him working. I think we all know that as we seek to see him working. Thirdly, Paul is specifically sent to the Gentiles. He makes this clear. He'll speak more about this, uh, but his task is a specific task. You and I, likewise, are where we are because God is working through us. We may be teaching in schools. Uh, we, God will use you there. We might be working in a cubicle in an office, or uh, God can use you, has a plan to use you in that place. Even teaching your children at home. You have your children and the opportunity to involve them as you interact with people in the community. And as you interact with them, as you share uh, truth and knowledge with them. You have a role and God has a plan to use you specifically where you are. Just like Paul. The gospel is all about grace. So we should share it. You receive grace yourself as you do. And you will be a grace to those you share with who choose to follow Jesus. Grace is that thing we don't deserve. 
We get it. We get to share it. We get to see it change other people. It's amazing what Paul got to do, but you are a part of it too. Paul wants them to not only know who he is and all of this and what he's doing, but he also wants them to know that his message isn't his own. He didn't just think this up one day, some kind of innovational, uh, innovational spiritual truth. He says that this task was a part of the grace that was given to him. It wasn't from him. Verse 3, Paul says the mystery was explained to him through revelation. Why does he talk about this? Well, it's important. He reflects on the revelations that God has given him several places throughout the Bible, of the New Testament specifically, through his letters uh, in Galatians, for instance, and other places. But in Acts chapter 22, uh, as Paul is being taken into custody by the Romans in Jerusalem during a riot, Paul addresses the crowd. He's given permission and addresses the crowd. He sort of gives his testimony of what God is doing in his life. He gives his lineage, where he comes from. He tells about how at an earlier time he was headed to Damascus to punish and imprison these Christians. And on the road he was blinded by Jesus himself. And in a vision, um, or in, and he sees Jesus in a vision. And, and once his group arrives at the town, um, he, being blinded by that vision earlier, is, is led to the town and he has to wait helplessly till Ananias one of God's people comes prays for him tells him of the name of Jesus uh, and tells him to call on the name of Jesus more more clearly and to be baptized so he sees Jesus in a vision he goes blind Ananias says you need to call on the name of Jesus and be baptized trust in him afterwards he goes back to Jerusalem and this is where I actually want to read um, Acts 22 verse 17 through 21 it says this Paul recounts to the crowd, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he, Jesus, said to me, Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul wants the Ephesians to know he's not just wandering around. He is sent by Jesus himself to tell the Gentiles the amazing truth. They're included in God's plan. Verse 5, Paul says that the truth of chapter uh, 3 that we're in in Ephesians, Paul says that this truth was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Last week we talked about, about how the inclusion of the Gentiles is an amazing thing in the first century especially. We have struggled to see the impact of that. God is bringing groups of people that were never together and making them into one group. A group of faithful people following him. Paul wants to remind them again of his message. Paul doesn't want to hide the mystery from them. And in verse 3 he says he's already written about this mystery. And we talked about it already too. It's found in Ephesians 1, 9-10. through 10, that The mystery of, of his will. Of the plan for the fullness of time to bring and unite all things in Jesus. God will bring those uh, those all things in Jesus, and that includes those who are of different groups, those who are Jews and Gentiles. 
even those people we least expect, uniting them into one group. Paul sharing, uh, is sharing that this, this will and plan, um, he's sharing it with the believers in Ephesus. And last week we talked about the shocking truth that no one uh, is beyond this plan. No one can be beyond this plan. All things are to be united in Christ, and that includes the Gentiles. To apply this to our modern situation, the shock of Ephesians for you, and the shock of all of this, really, that you are included in God's plan. If you hear the truth of what Jesus has done, you hear his love for you, and you understand the amazingness of it, it's for you. The message of the gospel is open for all. We don't know who's going to consider it. We don't know whose life is ready to be changed by this. We don't know where God is working. So what do we do? We tell everyone. In the language of Ephesians, the gospel message has the end goal of uniting you with God and his people in Christ. This was all done through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is God, come for us, lived perfectly for us, and he offered his life. He faced the just wrath of God for your sin. He did all this out of love for you. Wrath, death, separation are what you and I deserve, but Jesus took that. Jesus proved his ability and power to offer you his perfect life before God for your sinful life. When he resurrected and he, he proved he was capable when he resurrected and ascended into heaven, he has shown himself to be the Lord of all. When he when we see who he is and what he has done and how much this shows his love for us, we have to cry out to him and ask him to save us from what we deserve. This changes our life from that point on. And the question for you and me is, have you done that? Paul's been mentioning these ideas throughout Ephesians. Have we done that? Has our life been changed? If it has, you're included in God's people, regardless of where you've come from. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, man, woman, doesn't all of us are one, regardless of our identity, regardless of our categories. That's an amazing truth. To highlight God's inclusion of all categories of people, Paul gives a summary of what we've seen in Ephesians so far in verse 6. He says, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Often don't make comments on Bible translations, um, but I will today. It's not a mistake, but it's a question of emphasis, okay? So look here at the, the ESV's version. It says uh, the idea of fellow in verse 6 should be grammatically extended to the other category. So as long as you see fellow and put it with all the other ones, then it's right. Should be actually uh, another way to translate it would be something more like the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers. This is actually captured pretty well in the NIV by using the word together. And I say this for Nate's, Nate's edification. So this in the NIV, verse 6 says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. The point that Paul is building to is the unity in God's people. We're going to see a ton of that in chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins and focuses completely on that. 
The truths of Genesis 12.3 are coming true. God tells Abraham that in him all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is possible. This is true in Jesus. The Gentiles are included. You and I are included in God's plan. That message is amazing, but it's not all that's here. Remember that Paul wants the Ephesians to know this message and be changed by it just as he is. God saved Paul. Paul wants them to know they can be saved too. Paul is an example, is saved. The Ephesians are likewise are saved, but Paul is also sent. Turn with me to verse 7. God sent Paul. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he has given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We'll stop there. Paul wants to make clear that he is not worthy of being sent. Paul first calls himself a minister, and actually this word in Greek is diakonos, which means servant. So Paul is a servant of and a servant for the gospel. Paul Paul commonly uses this terminology for lots of people. In verse 8, Paul says that he is the very least of all the saints. Actually, he says he is the leastest. Paul invents a word here, actually, even in Greek. He invents a word um, to emphasize his leastness. The original word wasn't enough. He was least. He was the leaster or less than the least. Something like that. We might think, yeah, right. Paul's pretty impressive. Why was he trying to emphasize this? He wants these Ephesians to know where he really stands. He was an enemy of God before, and yet God saved him. Paul knows himself to be a servant sent according to to God's grace, God's gift of grace for him, but sent with God's gift of grace for others. This drives Paul. Paul sees his mission as a gift and a grace, something he doesn't deserve of God to him. He didn't earn this task. He was not deserving of it. It was all God's idea. Clearly, Paul is passionate about his role as God sent one, but what is that to us? Why does this even matter? As an example, it encourages us that Paul isn't the author of this ministry. And the truth is, you and I aren't the author of our ministries, whatever they happen to be as well. We didn't make it up. Our only role is to be faithful. Paul's only role is to be faithful no matter the consequences. We aren't the author of anything we do. We can only be faithful. We can only trust that God will work. This is how it is for you and me. Our task is to be faithful. We should be sharing who God is, just like Paul. Be faithful. Trust God to work. Secondly, we're called to serve, just like this. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls us, those who follow Jesus, ambassadors for Christ. We are the ones who represent. We go and represent Jesus to others. We share his truth with others. We bring his message like an ambassador would to others. We're called to serve. 
But another part uh, of this whole thing is helpful for us to notice as well. Paul is sent, but don't forget that he's not alone. He's not alone. He's almost never alone. We almost never see Paul alone. There's occasions, but not very many. The letter to the Ephesians was brought by Tychicus, unless you say it differently. This tells us that he was with Paul at one point. We also see Paul use in, our same, in the same book in Ephesians 6, he used the word we. Our ministry and mission is larger than any of us. Paul's ministry and mission is larger than himself. We need to be reminded of that. We have others around us. We, are to do, we don't have to do it all on our own. God is there, but also we are there with each other. The size of the task brings a huge reality check. The size of any ministry task. We can't do it on our own. Remember where we were in our passage last week. The temple of God, the church of God, is being made out of God's people in plural. Paul's work, God's plan, and God's power is shown not in Paul alone, nor in any individual life. God's power is shown in the grand unity of what God is making in the church of God in Christ. We see all of this in our passage most clearly in verse 10. So that through, he said, Paul says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The word manifold is uh, many-sided. Kind of think about what a diamond would look like when it's all cut. It has lots of different sides to it. There is a lot of sides to God's wisdom. It's like God... Paul could have said just God's wisdom, but he didn't. He said the many-sided, the complex, the amazing wisdom of God. We can begin to know some of it, still have other sides to learn. But notice who the audience is of all this. Who's seeing what's happening in all of this? It's not us. It's not Israel. It's not kings and nations. It says it's the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul's suggesting that God's wisdom is being displayed to spiritual powers of some kind. We talked about this way back in chapter 1. There Paul was suggesting that Jesus is above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Jesus has more authority uh, than anything. And here God is showing his wisdom to all of those who have authority under Jesus, obviously. It isn't just humans that are amazed at what God is doing. Sometimes we need reminded of that. This is amazing. We should be maybe more amazed at what God is doing. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. Peter talks about the amazingness of salvation that had been preached to the readers of his letter. He then comments at the end of the verse that these details of the good news of salvation are things, he says, into which the angels long to look. Suggests that even God's angels are amazed at what God is doing in saving his people. There are other spiritual powers as well, besides God's angels. When Paul uses the phrase, uh, he means other powers Two, at the end of our letter in chapter 6, Ephesians 6.12, Paul tells the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and they, that they may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Ephesians, the believers, would be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the Ephesians know about spiritual powers. They likely fear those powers, but Jesus will conquer those same powers. He's above them and over them, and this is proven through the power of his resurrection, the salvation of his people. This is proven through the building of his temple, the church. Spiritual powers who are against God are concerned about Jesus' power. Because their end is coming, even if they do not know it yet. Jesus will destroy their rule. It is the, uh, the proof of all of that is his church, the existence of his church. So what's the result of knowing who Jesus is and recognizes power and authority and what he's accomplished for us and in us? What's, what's, what's the, the result of all of that? We can approach God boldly. Verse 12 says, we have boldness and access to God with confidence through our faith in him. Do you recognize how shocking it is that we can approach God at all? What could give us the boldness to even approach God at all? Why would we have access to God at all? Why would he care? What level of confidence can we have before a holy, mighty God when we are who we are? The answer comes here at the end of verse 12. This is through our faith in him. Our faith in Jesus, who he is and what he has accomplished and will accomplish emboldens us. Faith in Jesus. It's an interesting side note, but uh, there's another possibility for how this end of verse 12 could be translated. Some scholars would understand verse 12 to be better translated by the idea that we have boldness and access with confidence not through our faith in him, but instead it could be because of his faithfulness. You could take those words in Greek and look at his faithfulness being the foundation for why we can approach God. Now, we have to have faith in order to do that. So it doesn't get us out of it, but it emphasizes where, why are we bold? Not because of us, but because of him. Our confidence would not rest in our own faith, in us, but in Jesus instead. And that's a newer idea among scholarship. The, the New English, or no, yeah, New English translation of the Bible translates this passage with a note that suggests this is just really complicated to decide. If it's true, it emphasizes how amazing our position for God is because it is never based on our faithfulness, but on Jesus's. This doesn't change anything really, but it makes us even more bold and confident. It should encourage us because we're secure in the faithfulness of Jesus. Either way, we can boldly approach God by trusting in Jesus, putting our faith in him. We know that we have access to God because of Jesus' faithfulness to follow through with all that he set out to do. He's worthy of our faith and it proves it by his faithfulness and power and victory. And we can trust in that and put our faith in that. We see in Ephesians that God has a plan to unite all things in Jesus. This is what we said over and over. This is specifically seen in his church, like we said before. This is both passive and active on our part. Church is being built from the outside by God, but it's also being actively grown from its own members, like Paul. Paul was sent by God, but he was a member of the church, helping to grow the church. We have those same roles as well. This morning I suggested these two things to you, but for clarity I've adjusted these a little bit for our application moment. 
God saved Paul, but God saved you. God saved you to be the church. It is something he has done for you. So how do we, how do we live in that? First, we have to know the gospel, that Jesus changed our lives. That's important. Maybe you've never uh, trusted in what Jesus has done. Maybe you never acknowledged how bad you really are before him, how faithless you are, and how much you need his faithfulness. If you've never done that, let me invite you today, right now, to become part of what God is doing. All you have to do is call on him and trust in what he has done for you right now. Let today be the day you call on the name of Jesus. Call on God. Ask him to save you. We would love to talk to you after service if that's something that you want to talk about. But ask him now. You can do it where you are. If you only trust him and his sacrifice for you on the cross, then for the rest of your life, you get to join others like us as we explore how all of this works out. Maybe you've been changed by Jesus, but you've never been a part of a church. Or maybe you haven't been there in a while. All of us, though, I think I know, have to consider, do consider, have considered where we fit into all of this. Let me suggest to you the, this truth, though. The church is not a part of God's plan. Paul's not saying God is doing something. Oh, and the church is a little bit of that. For us, this is God's plan. We join his plan as we join his church and we completely invest ourselves in it. The church, in truth, is the purpose of the gospel. Maybe you're a member of um, this church. Great. Serve, be faithful. Maybe you're not. Seek out where you can be a part of God's plan, that this would work out, that you would be a part of His church. Be the church. God saved you to be the church. But just like Paul was sent, God sends you. God sends you. To build the church. Now I hesitate to use the word build because I used build earlier and tried to differentiate it from grow. But I didn't know how to do this better. I'm sorry. This is where I struggled. But it's different because of you. Because you're part of the church. If you're part of the church and you're building yourself, the church, then it is growing. But grow doesn't work as good as be the church, build the church. It just has a little better ring to it. Couldn't, couldn't figure it out. Like Paul, we're charged to build the church. We may not have a mission to the Gentiles, but we're part of the temple that is growing itself that we talked about earlier. On our church website, we have a section that's about us, an about us page, where we mention this idea of being both senders and sent. Our biblical community, it says on that in the third paragraph, says our biblical community consists of individuals who recognize that for God's glory and in service to his kingdom, we are both senders and sent. As senders, we want to use our lives to disciple others to go and serve him. And as the sent, we want to be ready when God sends us to love and share the gospel with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, and perhaps with people in another city or around the world. 
We end with a question, so how are you building the church? How are you building the church as the church? How are you doing that? Well, one is, how are you sending? Are you helping others to grow? We are all called to help others to grow. In the building metaphor, this would be like shaping the blocks that we talked about last week through discipleship, helping them to grow. We do that in teaching Sunday school. We do that in talking to people. We do that in walking faithfully with others, helping them to understand the Bible. Are you growing others into the faithful followers they're called to be? Matthew 28, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus calls us to teach new followers. It, said, it says all that he commanded. Are you doing that? Are you helping others to grow? Are you preparing them? And are you helping others to go? Maybe you can give some finances or resources for those who are going to new places or living in challenging areas. We are a Southern Baptist church. We have an opportunity to give to missionaries who travel around the world to share the gospel and grow the church through our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It comes around December time. It's an, an annual thing that our denomination does to pool their resources to be able to send people to the nations and support those people going to the nations. We're going to get the opportunity to do that. So there's more to come. But how are you supporting what God is doing? How are you sending? But also, how are you living sent? How are you experiencing life as someone who is sent? God's people are active, but there's a challenge to this in our passage this morning. Before we talk about being sent, I want you to notice the challenge. I skipped over two verses. Verse 1 and verse 13. Paul said in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, starts off that way, and then he skips on to verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's writing these whole, this whole section as an encouragement to the Ephesians. He knows they might be concerned about his situation. So why would he talk about being a prisoner and suffering? We'd like to hold Paul up as this amazing example to follow, but we tend to skip over this kind of part of it. We don't often think about his struggle and how serious it was. Notice why Paul is willing to deal with these struggles. It was not because he was tough or because it was for his own pride's sake. I'm Paul. I can take anything. No. It was because of his perspective. Paul calls himself a prisoner of what? Jesus. Not Rome. He's a prisoner of Christ. And he challenges the Ephesians to think of his suffering as something that's done for them and for their glory. He knew that his suffering was part of God's plan for the benefit of his church, to build his church. Do you think about suffering like that? Here's the challenge for us. This is a challenge I've been thinking about most of the week. How far would you go? Have you ever asked yourself this question? I don't know that there's a good answer that you can give or any of that, but it is important for us to reflect and think. How far does our love for God take us? How far does his love for God compel us? What would be too much for God to ask of you? I'm reading through, this is completely outside of my notes, but I'm reading through Job. <laughs> completely that story. Job is wrestling with what is too much for God to ask. 
Paul says, I'm facing all this. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't deny, he uses the word suffering, but says it's for the sake of the church. He knows he's sent for the church. Paul wants the Ephesians to know it was God, God's idea for the, him to come to them. He didn't make it up. It, it was God's message that Paul brought to them. He didn't bring someone else's message. It was God's plan to save these Ephesians, the Gentiles, and the Jews who were there. In order to do that, he sent Paul with his message. God has been good to them, and they can trust in him. That's what Paul wants them to hear. But it's true for you, too. God has shown us who Jesus is. God has shown his power and plan to unite all things by changing you and me. And his plan is being worked out in his people just like you and me. Beginning with the one who shared the gospel with you at some point in your life. Now in your changed life through the gospel and in the ones you are sharing this truth with as well. We are sent like Paul. We're sent in at least two ways. We're sent to build the church by finding new building materials. How do we do that? How do we find new building materials for the temple? It's a spiritual temple made out of his people. We share the truth of Jesus with everyone. We ask them to follow him. And guess what? Some of them are going to say yes. Some of them are the building materials that God will use to build his temple and shape into exactly what he wants. What a privilege to be able to talk of Jesus and to see God change lives. But you're also called, or sent, sorry, you're also sent to build his church in new places. It's possible that you're sent to go across the world where people have never called on the name of Jesus. No matter what the cost is, be faithful. But it's also possible that you are sent to go to another city to serve his church, or maybe even to start a new church in a new, another place. No matter the cost, be faithful. But if those are not God's plans for you, he still, you still are sent. He sent you to your neighbors. He has sent you to your friends and your family, to your classmates and co-workers. He has sent you to share with them, to love them, and to invite them into a faithful walk with Jesus. No matter the cost, be faithful. Call on God and be changed by him. And if you're changed by God, join with his people. Join them in praising him, seeking faithfulness, and be the church. And then build the church as one who is both a sender and who is sent. Let me pray for us. God, we cry out to you to save us. Save us from ourselves. Save us, save us from our ambition, our dreams. Save us from us. Let the gospel truth just wash over us and change us in every area of our life. Send us out as your people. Help us to love others and invite them into your church. We might see your temple built. Help us to prepare your people for the mission, for the thing that you are sending them on. Help us to grow one another. Help us to send your people so that your kingdom spreads throughout this country, throughout this whole continent, throughout this whole world, throughout the whole earth, as you already promised it will. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be sent. Help us to send others. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.